Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. Today I have a smorgasbord of sorts for you, all sorts of different kinds of recipes. We're going to start off with one from eatingwell.com for cucumber sandwich. This creamy, crunchy cucumber sandwich recipe strikes a lovely balance between decadent and light. The cream cheese yogurt spread complements the crisp, refreshing cucumber, while the hearty flavor and texture of the whole wheat bread holds everything together. Removing the crust makes it more delicate than your average sandwich, and I would say a little too, a little more fancy too. It takes uh, 10 minutes of active time and serves one. Ingredients, two ounces of cream cheese at room temperature, one tablespoon of low-fat plain Greek yogurt, one tablespoon of sliced fresh chives, one tablespoon of chopped fresh dill, one quarter teaspoon of ground pepper, two slices of whole wheat sandwich bread, and one third cup of thinly sliced English cucumber. For step one, you're going to stir the cream cheese, yogurt, chives, dill, and pepper together in a small bowl until well blended. Spread the mixture evenly on one side of each bread slice. Top one slice with cucumber slices, then top the other bread slice with cream cheese side down. Cut the crust from the sandwich and cut it in half diagonally. Pretty simple, but kind of yummy and a little bit fancy. Next, we've got a recipe for chicken wonton soup. This one from smittenkitchen.com. I don't know why it took me so long to make this, as it combines the only two things I ever want when I'm sick, chicken noodle and wonton soup. The thing is, when you're sick, you absolutely do not want to cook anything. Also, sometimes when we're well, to be completely honest, shh, don't tell anyone. And so for a couple of nights, we picked up a decent chicken noodle soup in the neighborhood, but when we tired of that, ordered wonton soup instead. It's usually a disappointment. Sometimes it seems like a quart of bland broth with three floating pockets in it, not the most filling meal. Plus, it's off the menu for anyone who doesn't eat pork or shrimp. But this one was not. It was chicken wontons and chicken broth, and it was exceptional, the happiest mashup of two wonderful things. Had the delivery not come an hour later, forcing me to scramble some food together for the kids anyway, I probably would have never made this. But as I was enjoying my soup, I realized that this would be so ridiculously easy to hack, it might even be done before it arrived next time. I did make it as a soup here, but I also need to tell you that my favorite way to eat wontons when we're not sniffling and sneezing is Szechuan style, in chili oil with soy and garlic. Slippery, hot, salty, and savory at once, there's almost no going back after trying them once. This recipe from Fuchsia, Fuchsia Dunlop seems as straightforward as possible, and I'd start with a sauce here if making them for the first time. Traditionally, I begin each year on Smitten Kitchen with a super stew, and there's a, here's a few from previous years, and there's links on the website, chicken chili, my ultimate chicken noodle soup, chicken pho, carrot soup with tahini and crispy chickpeas, and carrot soup with miso and sesame, and mushroom and farro soup. And there's, rest, there's links to all sorts of more recipes on smittenkitchen.com. 
This is the recipe for the chicken, chicken wonton soup. It serves six and takes one hour. I found the wonton soup recipe on Serious Eats to be a useful reference in making this, although my recipe is intended to be quick, lazy, and wildly less authentic. As will happen, my 12-ounce package of wonton wrappers contained 50, but one pound of meat made 58 wontons. What's a recipe writer to do? Do we buy extra wonton wrappers? You can freeze the rest. Do we write a recipe for three quarters pounds of ground meat? Not exactly standard package size. I went with the latter as even with six wontons per bowl of soup, you'll have extra. You can freeze these too until needed. I include ingredients to doctor up store-bought stock with ginger, garlic, and scallions, but I need to be completely honest here. You can probably skip it, too. The wontons have the real flavor here, and a little dash of soy, toasted sesame oil, and fistful of scallions go a long way at the end to making this an easy weeknight soup. Yes, even with that wonton folding. Here's how you make the wontons. You'll need three quarters of a pound of ground chicken, one teaspoon of soy sauce, three quarters teaspoon of kosher salt, one and a half teaspoons of toasted sesame oil, one and a half teaspoons of grated fresh ginger, three tablespoons of minced garlic, chives, regular chives or scallions, ground white pepper to taste, and 50 wonton wrappers, about 12 ounces, thawed if frozen, the thinnest ones that you can find, and then cornstarch to prevent sticking. For the broth, you'll need eight cups of prepared chicken stock or broth, store-bought or homemade, a three-inch piece of ginger, peeled and sliced, two large garlic cloves, crushed, one bundle of scallions to be used here and to finish, soy sauce or salt to taste. And to finish, you'll need three ounces of baby spinach leaves, that's a few handfuls, and toasted sesame oil and soy sauce to taste. To make your filling, you're gonna combine the chicken, soy sauce, salt, sesame oil, ginger, chives, and pepper in a bowl with a fork. If you'd like to test for seasoning, put a tiny dab in a microwave-safe bowl or plate and cook for 10 very splattery seconds. Adjust the flavors as desired. Next, you're gonna form your wontons. Place a few wonton wrappers on your counter and then cover the remaining ones with a piece of plastic wrap. Place one heaped teaspoon from a measuring spoon set in the center. Use your fingers dipped in water to dampen the edges and fold one corner diagonally across to the other, pressing the air out as you seal it shut. Then bring the two corners on the wide side of the triangle down below it and use a dab of water to seal them shut. You're not trying to pull the corners across the belly, but pointing downward. Lightly sprinkle a big plate with cornstarch and place the formed wontons on it. Repeat with the remaining wontons. I found that after I'd made a couple and got the hang of it, I could lay out six at a time and get each batch of six done in two minutes, meaning that this process took me about 20 minutes total. Next, you're gonna fix up your stock, and again, this is optional. But while you're forming the wonton, should you want to enhance your stock, uh, chop the white and light green parts of your scallions into one half to one inch segments, and then cut the dark green tops into thin slivers and save for garnish later. 
Place the stock in a three to four quart pot with sliced ginger, the white and light green scallions you've just chopped, garlic and soy sauce or salt as needed to season. Simmer them together for 20 minutes while you make, make the wontons and then strain out the ginger, scallions, and garlic. Next to cook the wontons, once the wontons are formed, you can cook them right in the simmering broth or you can do so in simmering water. The latter is better so that the cornstarch on the wrappers doesn't make the soup cloudy. Boil wontons for three minutes to cook them inside. This is really all it takes, but if you're nervous, cut one in half to be sure. To finish the soup, add the spinach to the simmering broth and let it cook for one minute until softened. Add cooked wontons to the broth and let them warm through again for 30 seconds. Ladle the wontons and soup into bowls. I used about one and a quarter cups of broth and six wontons per serving. Drizzle each dish with a little toasted sesame oil, a bit of soy sauce if desired, and scattered with reserved dark scallion tops. And then dig in. As far as doing ahead, wontons can be formed and refrigerated for a day or frozen for a month or longer. Next we've got a recipe for broccoli roast. Doesn't sound very exciting, but boy, roasted veggies, mm, and me, we are friends. One of my probably most annoying insistences is in the 15 years that I didn't eat meat was that I suspected people didn't really like it as much as they thought they did. Take bacon, no doubt the first thing that comes to mind when some leaf-horfing former vegetarian has the audacity to suggest that you could live without flesh. You love the way it's smoky and salty and crispy and fatty, right? But how much of that has to do with the actual taste of pork belly versus the way we've treated it to make it even more amazing? How much of Korean short ribs are about the unseemly delicious marinade how much of southern fried chicken is about that shattering crust comprised mostly of buttermilk, flour, and grandma love? How much of barbecued ribs is about the gloriousness of the meat on the bones versus the long tenderizing smoking and the sweet, salty, spicy stuff we mop our, or crust on top? Sorry, I have to stop this paragraph right here so I can eat it. <laughs> and while it pretty much only took me one pregnancy, the one where I craved burgers nonstop to understand that, yes, there is perhaps more to meat than the sum of its seasonings and cooking methods. I still get more excited about vegetables being treated like big old slabs of meat than I do about what, um, what they've mimicked. So any restaurant should know how to cook a ribeye medium rare, but can they make broccoli steaks? Thus, when a friend tipped me off, and by tipped me off, I mean I saw it on her Instagram and commented, Give me that tell me everything now, now, now to the broccoli roast at the impossibly charming. I mean, that wallpaper, those bathroom sinks. There's literally nothing there that isn't already on the Pinterest board of dreams. Burnside Biscuit in Astoria. I pretty much went nuts and routed my whole family's weekend around getting it in my belly. It did not disappoint, which sucks because Astoria is a small schlep from here. They bring it out in a cast iron pan still hissing from the wood-burning oven, coated in a light dry rub, a little sharp cheddar, and a cider vinegar dipping sauce, and you attack this thing with a steak knife. A steak knife! L little things make me as happy as vegetables that require a steak knife. It leaves you with so many big questions to ponder. 
Are these ribs? Is this barbecue? What if we stopped treating vegetables like side dishes? When a vegetable is the centerpiece, does it need a side of protein? And I suspect that, like us, you won't be bothering with any of it because you'll be too busy shoving forkfuls in your mouth. There's a beautiful picture of this gorgeous roasted broccoli. Here's the recipe, the broccoli roast. This is inspired by the one at Burnside Biscuits in Astoria. It's time we started treating vegetables like big old slabs of meat, don't you think? Heard that before. This is not the recipe, but my riff on it, inspired by what I ate there. I used a small amount of the dry rub that I put on ribs with a little less sugar and then roasted various stalks of broccoli the way I always do before finishing it with a little cheddar as they at the restaurant do and which can totally be skipped because honestly I love cheese but it doesn't add that much here. The vinegar dipping sauce is like a vinaigrette minus the oil and it cuts nicely against the broccoli and rub flavors the way a squeeze of lemon juice usually does against green vegetables. This is a spectacularly simple and habit-forming way of making broccoli, so you'll be glad this makes more rub than you'll need. This serves too heartily. You'll need olive oil, about one pound of broccoli, although the weight isn't that important, either in one big head or two or so trees, <laughs> grated aged cheddar, and again, this is optional. For the dry rub, you'll need two teaspoons of packed dark brown sugar, one teaspoon paprika, ideally smoked but regular will also work, one tablespoon of chili powder, one teaspoon of onion powder, chipotle powder or ground red pepper, cayenne, to taste, one teaspoon of coarse or kosher salt, and more to taste. And then for the cider vinegar dip, you'll need one tablespoon of cider vinegar, one quarter teaspoon of smooth Dijon mustard, pinch of salt, smoky flaky salt sea salt is wonderful here if you have it pinch of pepper flakes and a shake of smoked hot paprika or chipotle powder you're going to heat your oven to 450 degrees fahrenheit and then coat a large roasting pan with a glug or two of olive oil combine the rub ingredients in a small dish taste a pinch it should be flavorful but more salty than sweet with a kick and then make adjustments to taste Prep the broccoli by peeling any knobby bits and outer skin off the stalks, and then cut the smaller heads lengthwise through the stems into two stakes, in quotes. Cut the larger ones a second time into four wedge-shaped stakes, if desired. Place the cut side down in a roasting pan and then drizzle the tops very lightly with olive oil and sprinkle with rub. Then roast for 20 minutes until deeply brown underneath and while roasting, combine the cider vinegar dip ingredients. Flip and then coat the cut side with more rub and roast for another 10 to 15 minutes until charred at the edges. Remove from the oven and immediately grate a small amount of cheese over the broccoli if you're using it. Serve with cider vinegar dip and if you'd like to be more like the restaurant with a little pile of smoked sea salt on the side. Eat with forks and steak knives, <laughs> definitely. Next recipe is for migas with tomato chipotle coolis. Cooli, <laughs> C-O-U-L-I-S. Um, one of the chefs that I was most excited to meet at last week's Bahama Fest was Sue Torres, the talent behind two of my favorite places to eat in my neighborhood. 
Rocking Horse, she's no longer there, but was the one who put their stepped-up Mexican menu on the map. And Sueños, her current inordinately delicious hidden-away New Mexican restaurant, replete with a designated tortilla cook. Sure enough, her demo was totally packed, and I have her muscle recipe still waiting for me to give it a spin at home. However, when I got home from a week of pork belly and foie gras and four to seven course meals, what I really wanted was something simple. So I hunted around and looked around and look, I don't even want to admit how long I did, but I seem to be going through a phase of more extreme than usual pickiness coupled with laziness. So basically I was looking for a dinner that took 20 minutes or less to cook and was made of magic and la voila, Torres's Migas recipe crossed my browser and dinner was at once decided. As you might have noticed, we're big fans of breakfast for dinner around here. Since neither of us gets a nice plate of scrambled eggs and toast for breakfast most days of the week, more like a bowl of cereal or a cup of coffee grabbed on the way from the subway station, we welcome the comfort any time of day. Plus, when it comes to budget-friendly meals, you can't beat the humble egg and tortillas. So here's Sue Torres's Migas, which is a Mexican-style breakfast. This is adapted from Sueños Restaurant in New York City. Migas is Spanish for crumbs, and the dish is one of those Tex-Mex staples that's a hangover great with oil-crisp tortillas, onions, tomatoes, hot peppers, and whatever else you want to serve it with. Cheese, goat cheese would be especially awesome, refried beans, warm tortillas, home fries, salsas, and hot sauces. There are probably about as many ways to make it as there are people who eat it for breakfast. And I'd wager that nobody actually uses a recipe for them. But hey, I'm a gringo, and I really like Taurus's cooking. Make your own tortilla chips is not a requirement, but the thought of crushing tostitos into my dinner seemed all wrong. I simply cut up some thick corn tortillas and fried them in a half inch of bubbling, flavorless oil until they were golden on both sides, drained them well, and quickly salted them, and then tried not to finish them before dinner. Lastly, it's worth noting that the coulis seemed to be a real staple in Taurus's cooking. It's used in her muscle broth, it's ladled over entrees, and puddled beneath them. If you end up with extra, have fun with it. This serves four, tomato chipotle coulis. You'll need two large round tomatoes, or best available, two garlic cloves, minced, one half white or Spanish onion, minced. Tori says the white onion is more commonly used in Mexico. One chipotle and adobo from a can. I used half of one and thought it had plenty big kick. You can always start with a quarter and add more if desired. Kosher or sea salt to taste. And then you're going to puree all of the above in a blender jar. Heat a saucepan over high heat, add oil to coat, and once the oil is hot, add the sauce. Cook for 15 minutes or so and season to taste. Demonstration tip. Tori said that if you ever end up with a sauce too spicy, you can add a splash of cream to cool it off. Good tip. So for the migas, you'll need two links of Mexican or Spanish chorizo, removed from the casing, diced or coarsely chopped, four tablespoons of oil, which is a mixture of corn and olive oil, I think works best, eight eggs, lightly beaten, 20 corn tortilla chips, preferably fresh, 
fresh cilantro for garnish. You're going to first cook the chorizo. You're going to heat a medium-sized stainless steel saucepan over medium-high heat and add two tablespoons of oil. Add the chorizo and cook, stirring frequently until the chorizo is golden and cooked through about 10 minutes. Add the eggs and after a minute, the chips. Use a wooden spoon to crush the chips as you stir to cook the eggs. Cook for about five minutes, mine took less, or until it's almost cooked through, and then remove from the heat. Deb note, I'm a stickler about not overcooking or drying out scrambled eggs, bleh, and always remove them from the heat while they still look a little bit damp. They continue cooking in their residual heat, even once they're plated. Set up four plates for serving, ladle some coolie on the bottom of each dish, top with some of the egg mixture and sprinkle with the cilantro and serve immediately. Our next recipe is for sweet potato breakfast tacos. Savory breakfasts can be tricky on detox because they tend to rely heavily on eggs and bread, which are delicious but not a great fit for this reset. A sweet potato taco, however, fits the bill. It's super savory, quick to make, and playfully uses some of our favorite Middle Eastern ingredients in taco form. This recipe serves two and a tip on this, this would also work well with butternut squash instead of sweet potatoes. You're going to need two tablespoons of avocado oil, one large sweet potato, diced small, kosher salt, one teaspoon of za'atar, one quarter red onion, thinly sliced, one half teaspoon of sumac, four to six grain-free tortillas, we like siete cassava tortillas, and avocado tahini dip. To serve, you'll need lemon wedges and cilantro. First, you're going to heat a nonstick skillet over medium heat. Add the avocado oil, sweet potatoes, and a pinch of salt. Cook, stirring frequently, for about 10 to 12 minutes or until the sweet potatoes become browned on the outside and fork tender. Add the za'atar and let cook for another minute or so, and then remove from the heat. While the potatoes cook, toss the thinly sliced onions with the sumac and a pinch of salt and set aside. And to assemble the tacos, you're going to warm the tortillas either in a pan or over an open flame if you prefer a little bit of char, and then swipe each tortilla with the avocado tahini sauce, then top with a mound of sweet potatoes. Finish with some of the sumac, red onions, a squeeze of lemon, and cilantro. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.